This hearing uh, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, our hearing today is reinvigorating the U.S.-Columbia relations. As the world braces for Russia's assault against the Ukrainian people in defiance of a peaceful world order and in rejection of democratic values, it's imperative that we renew efforts to strengthen our alliances and closest partnerships, particularly those close to home. We have long championed the United States' relationship with Colombia as one of our most important in South America and one of the greatest uh, foreign policy successes globally. Indeed, together we have disrupted massive criminal networks and built an economic relationship worth nearly $50 billion. Thanks to the countless sacrifices of the Colombian people and our decades-long partnership, Colombia was able to end the world's longest civil war. Today, Colombia exports its expertise to help other nations combat drug trafficking and terrorism. Massive security improvements open Colombia's doors to the world while also enabling Colombians to discover their own homeland. In a welcome first, we even have a Disney movie about Colombia, enabling a generational shift in global perceptions about the country. Personally, I'm thrilled that Colombian-American children in New Jersey will be more likely to hear their peers singing about Bruno rather than recycling the tired tropes about Colombia's drug wars of the 80s and 90s. It's transformational on many levels. Of course, significant challenges still exist. The pandemic strained Colombia's national budgets and poverty increased. The government's presence in rural areas of the country diminished. Illicit coca cultivation continued to proliferate and armed criminal groups have returned to open conflict and are terrorizing local communities. Additionally, last year, the world watched as an ill-fated tax reform proposal sparked countrywide protests and brought violence to Colombia's cities unseen in decades. And Colombia is also shouldering an already generous response to Venezuela's protracted refugee crisis, a crisis that rivals the tragedy in Syria in size and impact. That said, I believe that the complexity of the world today demands that we embrace the opportunity to address different challenges, challenges like social and economic inequality, environmental deterioration, human rights, and the creeping influences of extra-regional actors like Russia and China. These issues may not affect the lives of Americans as directly as drug trafficking, but they are critical to the strength of our democracy in our hemisphere and to the region's overall health and resilience. In today's world, they must be a priority. It is long past time that we modernize our relationship with Colombia to focus on the realities of the present rather than the ghosts of the past, and to elevate our partnership to reflect Colombia's growing leadership on the world stage. We cannot afford to rest on our laurels. As we saw, former President Trump was a wrecking ball to U.S.-Colombia relations going so far as to say that Colombian President Duque had, quote, done nothing to work with the United States, an insult that is untethered from reality. That is why, with our country celebrating 200 years of diplomatic relations this year, I am announcing the most expansive legislative initiative to date to reinvigorate U.S.-Columbia relations. 
The U.S.-Colombia Strategic Alliance Act will formally designate Colombia as a major non-NATO ally of the United States. It will strengthen our partnership on international security and defense issues, as well as human rights and labor rights. It will also create a new enterprise fund to catalyze investments in Colombian businesses as they recover from the pandemic and promote efforts to diversify U.S. supply chains away from a reliance on China. My bipartisan legislation will facilitate new opportunities for women entrepreneurs and members of Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities. Importantly, we'll also propose actions to bolster Colombia's efforts to address the hemisphere's historic refugee and migration challenges and to support conservation of Colombia's truly privileged biodiversity. The bill reinforces the United States support for the full implementation of the 2016 Peace Accord, which continues to be the best, albeit imperfect, tool to build peace and democratic governance in Colombia. I'll close by noting that bipartisan support for Colombia has been directly contributed to the success of the U.S. approach. I look forward to working with my Senate colleagues on this new legislation. I welcome the views of our esteemed panelists on how we can modernize and strengthen our relationship in light of the new opportunities and challenges we face. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the United States has an enduring uh, interest in a prosperous, democratic, and stable Western Hemisphere. Strong relations with Colombia are important to attain these goals. This year, we proudly celebrate 200 years of diplomatic relations, the 20th anniversary of Plan Colombia, and the 10th anniversary of our bilateral trade promotion agreement. Our partnership has contributed to widespread economic growth and development, as well as safer and more secure communities, both in Colombia and the hemisphere at large. At the same time, Colombia's uh, homegrown democratic institutions have demonstrated extraordinary uh, resilience in the face of multiple and simultaneous crises. Uh, Colombia's internal security is under pressure due to flaws in the 2016 deal with the FARC and the ongoing security and humanitarian crisis created by the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Our Colombian allies need our support in confronting transnational criminal and terrorist organizations and maintaining a credible deterrence against the rising security threats in the region. Equally concerning is the uh, negative influence of malign state actors such as Russia and China. Russian disinformation campaigns and its export of sophisticated weapons and repressive practices to the Maduro regime are a growing threat to the security of Colombia and the stability of northern South America. China has shown growing interest in the region, and Colombia's neighbors have already suffered the consequences of China's predatory practices. The United States should work with cred uh, credible regional institutions, such as the Inter-American Development Bank, to unleash private sector solutions that fulfill the Colombian people's growing expectations. Uh, given its strategic location, straddling the Pacific Ocean and the Caribbean Sea, Colombia can be a powerful ally in the race to secure critical supply chains. The Biden administration should get serious about our partnership with Colombia or risk squandering the strategic gains of the last few decades. I welcome our witnesses today and look forward to hearing from you about these issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, we have a, a great panel of administration witnesses to start off. Uh, it's my privilege to welcome back to the Committee Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere, uh, Brian Nichols. Assistant Secretary Nichols has been an outspoken advocate for peace and prosperity in Colombia and regional security in our hemisphere. 
Prior to assuming his role as Assistant Secretary, he served two ambassadorships in the Republic of Zimbabwe and in Peru. He served as the Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Colombia, where he managed U.S. diplomatic activities and oversaw over $500 million in annual assistance. Welcome back, Mr. Secretary. We also welcome Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, Todd Robinson, to the committee, who's played a critical role in strengthening the U.S.-Colombia bilateral relationship in the areas of governance, anti-narcotic strategies, and security. Ambassador Robinson has served Special Advisor for Central America in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Ambassador Robinson was also previously charged de affair in Caracas, Venezuela, served as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Guatemala from 2014 to 2017. Welcome back to you as well. Finally, it's a pleasure to have the Honorable Marcela Escobari, Assistant Administrator of USAID's Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean as a witness for today's hearing. Her leadership within USAID, Latin America, and the Caribbean portfolio has been critical for supporting efforts that advance economic opportunity and peace in Colombia. While serving in the Obama-Biden administration as Assistant Administrator of USAID's Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean, she reinforced U.S. support for Peace Colombia and prepared a proactive strategy to confront the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. So with our thanks uh, of the committee to all of you for attending, we'll start off with you, uh, Secretary Nichols. We ask that you keep your statements to about five minutes so the committee can have a conversation with you. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And Secretary Nichols, you're recognized. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, I find it fitting that we take the opportunity to discuss Colombia now. As you noted, 2022 marks the bicentennial of bilateral relations between our two countries. The United States and Colombia stood shoulder to shoulder through some of the toughest tests of the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, and today we are closer partners than ever. We share a deep commitment to democratic governance, prosperity, and opportunity the rule of law, and respect for human rights. We share a determination to ensure Colombia has a lasting peace, counters terrorism and narcotics, expands state services and protection throughout its, its territory, um, and finds rich strength in its diversity. We join forces to uphold these values in our countries as well as others, and we do not refrain from calling out and holding accountable those who trespass upon the standards we hold dear. In the face of terrorist violence and brutal dictatorship in neighboring Venezuela that provide shelter and encouragement to both terrorist and criminal groups and caused the exodus of millions of uh, Colombia's resolve has not waned. We continue to seek ways to improve security and prosperity for citizens of both our countries. And we continue to support comprehensive implementation of the 2016 Peace Accord with the former FARC, which will be critical to ensure Colombia's transition from 50 years of conflict to a just, inclusive, and durable peace. Over the past year, the United States supported Colombia's impressive efforts to build back from the global pandemic. We donated more than $117 million to response and recovery efforts, including surge healthcare personnel, critical supplies, and equipment to curb the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States also donated 6 million safe, effective COVID-19 vaccine doses and helped to distribute them in hard-to-reach areas. 
Last week in Colombia, I witnessed the commitment of the Colombian government to further professionalize its security forces and increase state presence and resources in remote areas. During my visit, I underscored our shared commitment to human rights with civil society leaders and encouraged U.S. businesses in Colombia to create new economic opportunities. For all that we have accomplished together, there remains more to do. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the precarious state of Colombia's most vulnerable population. Colombia cannot achieve lasting peace without addressing the systematic inequities that have contributed to persistent violence. Expanding efforts to improve respect for human rights and accountability for past offenses remains essential. I will strengthen our work with Colombia to ensure historically disadvantaged communities of Afro-descendant and indigenous peoples benefit from the same opportunities as the broader population. I will continue prioritizing policies and programs that provide opportunities for women, minority ethnic communities, victims of violence, and other groups that remain disenfranchised in society today. The vulnerable populations in Colombia include almost 2 million Venezuelans displaced by the poverty, kleptocracy, and brutality of the Maduro regime next door. With its historic offer of 10-year temporary protection, Colombia generously welcomed Venezuelan refugees within its borders and provides short-term access to food, services, and medical attention uh, to nearly 6 million Venezuelans living in border communities all at a time when resources have been stretched even thinner due to the pandemic. Colombia has also assumed an outsized leadership position in the hemisphere in addressing irregular migration, including by co-hosting a hemisphere-wide ministerial on migration with Secretary Blinken last October. An acute priority is collaborating with Colombia to fend off the malign activities of state and non-state actors who increasingly seek opportunities to erode the hemispheric consensus on the importance of the rule of law and democratic governance. Those actors help Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba turn away from this consensus and enable the autocratic leaders of those countries to hold on to power by suppressing their own people. Colombia's leaders recognize that protecting democracy from external threats is essential. With elections on the horizon, the United States provides funding and technical support to help Colombia counter malign actors seeking to sow confusion and mistrust in the institutions Colombia and the United States worked so tirelessly to strengthen. We also continue to support Colombia's security efforts to ensure every citizen can exercise their right to vote safely. We will seek progress on our bilateral and regional goals throughout the end of the Duque administration and will engage with Colombia's next administration with a shared goal that governments must not only be elected democratically, but also govern democratically to improve the lives of all citizens. I am confident that this productive democratic partnership will continue to deliver for Colombians and Americans for years to come. Thank you for this opportunity and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Secretary Robinson. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Reich, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to, to testify today regarding INL's efforts in Colombia. And if I may, thank you for passage of state's authorization bill uh, and your leadership in that, which will help strengthen the department and reaffirms this body's commitment to the role of the Bureau of INL and other bureaus in the department. Together, with longstanding support for Congress, we have built one of the deepest bilateral partnership 
in the Americas. Colombia's security affects the security and welfare of our citizens, of all of our citizens. A stronger, more stable Colombia is not just a better partner, but provides regional leadership on, a, on our shared priorities, including countering transnational crime, enhancing regional security, and training security forces throughout the region. Colombia has made significant progress over the last 20 years, transforming into a stable uh, democracy and economy. To sustain Colombia's progress, we must continue to support Colombia's institutions and their capacity to expand state presence in rural areas, invest in counter-narcotics efforts, protect human rights, and combat environmental crime. The Duque administration has dedicated significant resources and personnel to meet ambitious counter-narcotics targets despite enormous challenges. While our combined efforts have helped slow years of explosive coca growth, the now historic levels of coca cultivation show more work is needed, which is why the US and Colombian uh, governments developed a new counter-narcotics strategy. Last October, we committed to a comprehensive holistic strategy to link state presence, development, rule of law, and environmental protection with reducing cocaine production. Our approach focuses on three pillars, integrated supply reduction, comprehensive rural development and security, and environmental protection. The strategy will define broader measures of success. Eradication will remain crucial, but we broadened our work to also focus on environmental crimes as narcotics traffickers also destroy the environment. Under the integrated supply re reduction pillar, INL is addressing cocaine production and related illicit finances. INL will continue to help Colombia eradicate coca, interdict cocaine and precursors, and improve the government's ability to disrupt criminal financial networks. We also support police effectiveness by improving, improving training, deployment cycles, and human rights practices. Under the Rural Development and Security Pillar, we hope to extend state presence to expand economic opportunity, advance the accords, and improve security, justice, and social services critical to people's needs. Our efforts with USAID protect community leaders, make licit crops more competitive, uh, formalize land ownership, and pursue environmental crimes. Our programs help reverse environmental degradation by enhancing detection, assisting Colombian efforts to pursue environmental criminals, and re reforestation. Our new strategy brings together U.S. and Colombian public stakeholders in an integrated, sequenced fashion with broader metrics to produce sustainable results in three targeted areas to gauge their efficiency, eff efficacy. For example, in Caceres, Antioquia, we sequenced programs to increase police presence, strengthen community police relations, remove landmines, formalize land ownership, improve infrastructure, provide agricultural training, train prosecutors, enforce environmental crimes, and improve local government services. To achieve this strategy, we recognize the Colombian people's confidence in their police and institutions must improve. We are therefore supporting the Colombian-led plan to increase police accountability, transparency, and protection of human rights. 
We support the Colombian government's focus on transparency and accountability, its intent to fully investigate allegations of police misconduct, and its statement of zero tolerance for officials acting outside the law. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, we have worked closely with the Duque administration to implement vital police reforms, achieve impressive counter-narcotics results, strengthen rural security, and disrupt criminal networks. We cannot and should not underestimate the challenges we face in Colombia. Armed groups are resilient, adaptive, and well-resourced. Improving rural security in Colombia, an urbanized country almost twice the size of Texas, is a significant challenge. We look forward to working with the next Colombian presidential administration and believe our new whole of government strategy can accommodate whoever wins the next Colombian elections. Our work and success in, Colombian, in, Colombian, in Colombia are made possible by strong bipartisan congressional support. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, and, and thank you for recognizing the state authorization that Senator Rich and I, along with other members of the committee, were able to achieve, something that hasn't been achieved in a couple of decades, so, and we hope to build upon that in the future. Uh, Administrator Escobar. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, and distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. Colombia remains one of the United States' closest and most steadfast partners in the hemisphere. Despite daunting challenges, the country's people and successive governments have demonstrated the will and the capacity to end decades of civil conflict and build a more peaceful, prosperous, and just society. Today, Colombia is facing severe shocks, COVID-19, the Venezuelan migration crisis, and a rise in coca cultivation. These shocks threaten progress made toward peace and inclusive development. And USAID is helping Colombia address these issues head on. USAID adjusted fast to support Colombia's COVID response. Aside from emergency assistance, we made adjustments throughout our programs to mitigate the impacts of the virus. Our support has helped get shots in arms, helped schools shift to virtual learning, protected women from gender-based violence, and provided food to those that lost their livelihoods. We're now focused on the future, getting Colombia's youth back to school and supporting a robust economic recovery. We remain committed to supporting Colombia in protecting human rights. As the FARC demobilized and stepped away from the battlefield, criminal gangs have entered into violent competition to control territory and the illegal narcotics trade. Social and, and environmental leaders who are fighting back have become even more vulnerable to violent attacks. And USAID has deepened its efforts to support them. We helped the National Protection Unit to make more effective use of collective protection for ethnic groups. We helped the Attorney General secure 88 sentences in human right defender homicide cases to date. There is a lot more work to do, but these are positive steps toward greater accountability. COCA's rapid expansion also greatly complicates rural development. Last October, the White House announced the implementation of a more integrated and holistic approach to counter narcotics in Colombia. USA supports this strategy to integrate and sequence assets in each municipality in tight coordination with the Colombian government and our interagency partners. Together, we bring expanded access to state services, land reform, rule of law to guarantee basic rights, and income for licit producers. Together, this brings an expanded state presence that gives alternative sources of income over COCA a real chance. 
One promising strategy has been providing land titles. USAID piloted the first municipal-wide titling sweep in a municipality emblematic of the armed conflict, Colombia's Montes de Maria area. These efforts are showing positive results, and USAID hopes to scale this pilot program in other coca-growing municipalities. In addition, we recently launched the agency's largest award dedicated to ethnic inclusion, and we're advancing localization efforts through direct grants to four local Afro-Colombian and indigenous organizations. Another massive challenge is the Venezuelan migration crisis. In an act of remarkable generosity, Colombia welcomed nearly two million Venezuelan migrants and refugees with open arms, and USAID quickly adjusted its programs to provide assistance. In addition to immediate relief, including food, medicine, and shelter, U.S. investments have helped Colombia ramp up registration of Venezuelans under their TPS programs, helping Venezuelans access basic services and employment opportunities. Colombia's response is a promising model for the region, and USAID will continue to support Colombia's integration efforts. Lastly, and similarly to migration, Colombia has responded to its environmental challenges with innovation and leadership. USAID's mission in Colombia oversees the agency's largest natural environment investment in the hemisphere, focused on tropical forests and biodiversity conservation, as well as addressing environmental crimes. The challenges I have outlined may seem daunting, but it is our task to make peace irreversible. It will be a long-term endeavor, but the trust and progress we have forged with the Colombian people will continue to provide a strong foundation for the future. Allow me to close with the words of Luis Fernando Arias, a leading voice of Colombia's indigenous movement and a close USAID partner, who a year ago this week died from COVID. He reminded us, quote, we have to continue working for a country that is more humane, peaceful, equitable, and inclusive. We are here because Colombia cannot have one more victim. May his words be our call to action today. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you. Thank you all for your testimony. We'll start a round of five minutes. Uh, Mr. Secretary Nichols, the United States has designated 15 countries as major non-NATO allies, including two in the Western Hemisphere, Argentina and Brazil. This special status elevates our closest partners and provides special benefits in security cooperation. Given the expansive security partnership between our countries, uh, my new legislation would formally designate Colombia as a major non-NATO ally. It's also important to note that the ties between NATO and Colombia have grown over the last decade. In 2017, Colombia became the first country in Latin America to achieve the status of NATO global partner, underscoring the nation's leadership on security matters, not just in the Western Hemisphere, but globally. President Biden has said that Colombia is, quote, the keystone of U.S. policy towards Latin America. I fully agree and believe it's time we formalize Colombia's role. So, Secretary Nichols, can, given the United States' close bilateral and multilateral security partnership with Colombia, what's your assessment of formally designating Colombia as a major non-NATO ally? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I certainly welcome uh, the initiative and the, the framework that uh, your bill uh, brings to bear. And uh, major non-NATO ally status uh, is uh, something that I believe uh, sends a positive signal, uh, given the tremendous progress in the relationship that we have with Colombia, 
typically the process for designating a country uh, has been with the recommendation of the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense to the President. I don't want to um, uh, jump over that process, uh, but I know I, I can't think of any country uh, that better fits that role. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I think it's long overdue personally, and I hope uh, that this jump starts uh, a conversation within the administration to uh, come to that conclusion. Uh, let me ask you another question. In recent weeks, uh, Putin, as part of a desperate effort to distract from the imminent assault of the Ukrainian people, has sought to expand support for this hemisphere's dictators in an apparent attempt to intimidate our closest partner, Russia military advisors are accompanying Venezuelan military personnel near the Colombia border. But frankly, Russia's support for the region's dictators have already destabilized Latin America. Upwards of six million Venezuelans have fled their homeland as a result of Russia coaching the Maduro regime. The instrumentalization of vulnerable refugees is part of the Russian playbook to provoke crises, overwhelm governments, deepen divisions. As has been testified here too, nearly two million Venezuelans have sought refuge in Colombia, challenging the government's efforts to respond to long-term issues related to social and economic inequality, eternal displacement, the pandemic. When Russia's not launching out uh, all-out attacks against countries, it's intimidating, extorting, and sowing mis- and disinformation, all of which aim to shake the foundations of democracy around the world. How should we interpret Russia's presence in the region. What are the security implications for Colombia? Russia seeks to destabilize our region, to inject um, conflict and tension from other parts of the world to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I had the opportunity to discuss these issues with our Colombian counterparts last week in a delegation led by Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Newland, uh, and we remain vigilant uh, about the Russian activities both uh, along the border with Colombia, but more broadly in our region. And they also seek to uh, prop up the, the tin pot dictators uh, that they support in our hemisphere. Well, and that, and that to me is a, another reason why this deepening of relationship with Colombia is important within the hemisphere uh, as, uh, as a whole. Administrator Escobar, uh, Colombia's long-standing challenges with social and economic inequality reached an apex last year when the combined effects of the pandemic and the tax reform proposal, which, by the way, I called ill-fated, but uh, in large part in response to the IMF uh, and the IMF pressures on countries like Colombia, and it's a broader question for another time, but it seems to me the IMF, IMF leads, needs to have a smoothing period for these countries, not to walk away from their responsibilities, but if you are going to require some rather dramatic uh, financial challenges in the midst of a pandemic, uh, and we've seen what we've had to do as a nation to try to meet that challenge, not every country has the wherewithal to do that. It needs to, be, uh, needs to be have a smoothing period, but that tax reform proposal led to mass protests, blockades, deeply concerning images of police violence. It was clear to me then and now that we have not done enough to work with our Colombian partners to facilitate the conditions for inclusive economic growth. The pandemic actually plunged three million Colombians into poverty. Uh, it's critically important that we engage both politically and programmatically 
to minimize these gaps and help level the playing field for all Colombians, including underrepresented communities such as Afro-Colombian and indigenous people. So I heard uh, what you said that we are doing, but I want to challenge you and say, what, how do we best use our programming to promote and support and inclusive economic growth in Colombia? And how are we engaging on the issue of uh, trying to foster a greater engagement by the private sector as part of our solution to meet that economic need? Thank you, Senator. Um, there's no doubt that Colombia has made tremendous progress and, uh, and has huge growth potential, right? But this growth potential needs to, uh, we need to make sure that it is inclusive and it reaches these uh, neglected rural areas, you know, and more so as Colombia tries to recover from COVID-19 and tries to integrate uh, the Venezuelan migrants. I think there's huge opportunities for the diversification of the economy. It has huge opportunities in the agricultural sector and, uh, and to modernize the entrepreneurial class. But what we need to do and what we have done as USAID is make sure that that modern, robust 21st century Colombia reaches the rural areas. We did it with financial inclusion where we helped mobilize over a billion dollars through Colombian banks to SMEs and micro-entrepreneurs in rural areas. And I think a lot more can be done to, to help uh, these farmers link to supply chains, illicit development, and, uh, and, and export their products abroad. All right. Thank you. Uh, Senator Rich. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Secretary Nichols, uh, in uh, March of 2020, almost two years ago now, the U.S. and Colombia announced a joint plan to reduce uh, cocoa cultivation and cocaine production by 50% by the end of 2023. Uh, we know it's going in the wrong direction and doesn't seem to be uh, turning uh, around. Do you believe that Colombia can meet these goals without conducting aerial eradication? Uh, I believe that uh, manual eradication, comprehensive alternative development programming, efforts to improve rural livelihoods can uh, significantly improve uh, Colombia's ability to uh, address illicit coca cultivation, bringing better rural governance to the country, uh, fully implementing the chapters of the peace accords that uh, deal with improving rural livelihoods will all help achieve that goal. Uh, I've served in both Colombia and Peru. Peru has never had aerial eradication programming uh, and made substantial gains uh, in addressing illicit coca cultivation. Well, you would agree with me, though, that aerial eradication is significantly uh, more uh, robust than uh, the other methods, hand uh, removal and those kinds of things. Do you agree with that? I think it's a, a choice for uh, each country. Uh, Colombia is a sovereign country, and uh, should they choose to pursue aerial eradication, uh, that will be their decision. Uh, but uh, whatever they determine, uh, we seek to work with them uh, to uh, address the threat of coca cultivation and trafficking. Well, that wasn't really the question. The question was, uh, do you, don't you agree that aerial eradication is the, by far, most uh, robust and the, and the most efficient way to do eradication? 
I feel like I'm taking away from my distinguished colleague from INL. However, uh, I note that the there can be uh, ancillary effects from aerial eradication uh, that diminish rural livelihoods and raise concerns. So I, I don't think you can just look at the uh, the amount of hectares uh, that have been eradicated without looking at the full impact of the policy. Uh, I think it can be very effective, uh, but it, it requires a thorough analysis and it's a sovereign decision for the Colombians. What, what's the U.S. policy in regard to that? Do we not have one? The, it, our policy is that it's a decision for Colombia to make, and if Colombia decides to pursue aerial eradication, we will support that. And we don't encourage them either way, is that what you're saying? We encourage them to decide what's best for them. But we don't encourage them uh, as far as which of these methods of eradication to choose. Or they, sh they should choose. We're not pushing them one way or the other. Thank you. Um, Sir, uh, Secretary Robinson, uh, the, uh, the, there's, it's estimated that the FARC has only delivered about $12.9 million of the $291 million it pledged to surrender uh, by the end of 2020 for reparations to their, uh, to their victims. Um, wh what is FARC doing? Well, first of all, why has why is FARC not surrendered those funds? Uh, I, I think that's probably a question for uh, my distinguished uh, colleague from uh, the Western hem Hemisphere. Uh, I'm not familiar with uh, the FARC having to uh, deliver this money, um, but uh, uh, I, I, can find, I can get an answer and find out for you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Secretary Nichols, I guess he threw you under the bus. Can you answer the question? I, I'm happy to be under the bus. The, <laughs> uh, it's so not a good place to be. <laughs> the, the FARC uh, has uh, many steps that it needs to undertake to comply with the peace accords. Uh, among that is uh, reparations and, uh, and implementing uh, decisions from the Justice and uh, Peace Courts. The, uh, they have cited a lack of resources as part of their inability to uh, provide reparations to victims, uh, but it's an ongoing process. Do you, do you believe that to be true, uh, uh, that they, they lack resources? Uh, I find that difficult to believe, given the experience that I had with the peace process in El Salvador when I served there. Do you know what they're doing with those, uh, with those funds instead of surrendering them? Uh, well, I do not know what they would be doing with those funds, but I imagine that some funds are um, buried underground, some funds are in foreign bank accounts, some funds are uh, with individual FARC members who decided not to demobilize would be my guess, but I can't say for certain. Thank you. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of our witnesses for being here today. Um, Assistant Secretary Robinson, I, I want to begin with you and pick up a little bit on um, the questioning that Senator Risch had with respect to 
our policies working with the Colombian government to address um, domestic cultivation and production of opioids or opiates because as a state, coming from a state that has had a real challenge with opioids, we would like to see less, fewer drugs getting across the border from um, South America and into the United States. So recognizing that um, we don't tell the Colombian government that they should do aerial eradication, what are we doing to try and address the illicit production of drugs in the country? Thank you very much for, for that uh, question. We have a very robust uh, relationship with the Colombian government uh, and my bureau in particular with the Colombian National Police. Uh, for a number of years, we have uh, uh, worked very closely training and equipping uh, the National Police and making sure that they have the tools necessary to go after these networks. Uh, as I mentioned in my statement, in uh, October, we agreed on a new strategy which will broaden uh, that effort, uh, help, helping them uh, to uh, reduce uh, the supply side by continuing with eradication investigations and targeting networks, um, by extending the, uh, the state out to rural areas, uh, both on the security side, but also on the development side, uh, and by uh, adding a new twist, uh, helping them investigate environmental crimes. We and know that the uh, that these crim that what these criminals are doing is negatively affecting the environment, and this is another way that we think we can be successful in going after going after these networks. And do we have data that shows that we are succeeding in those efforts? Um, the last time. And it's been several years ago now, but the last time I saw a report on the drugs that were being produced in Colombia, the production had actually gone up because of the decline in aerial eradication, not gone down. So do you have any data to support the effectiveness of the policies? Well, I think, um, uh, frankly, the data is mixed. We know that production uh, is uh, going down but the cultivation is going is increasing and that is why we are working uh, as as closely as we can with the Colombian National Police to uh, to go to those areas and we continue to do eradication we continue continue to do manual eradication but frankly what we need to do is a better job with the Colombians need to do uh, with our help is a better job of uh, going after their finances and we are, we are working with them on that. Uh, DHS, uh, my colleagues at DHS are also working with them on that. Good. I look forward to, to hearing what more we can do to address that. Um, Assistant Secretary Nichols, the 2016 peace accords provided for groundbreaking and comprehensive gender priorities. And yet the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, which is monitoring the implementation of the peace accord has reported that implementation of the gender commitments of that accord is not advancing as rapidly as the general accord implementation. In fact, according to their latest report released in November, the gender commitments have only reached 12% implementation, while the general accord implementation is considered to be 30% complete. So it's been over five years now. 
what is the State Department and USAID doing to ensure that the gender-related commitments are implemented? Thank you very much. Uh, uh, wholeheartedly agree with your question and concern. The uh, women and girls disproportionately suffered uh, under the conflict and continue uh, to be disadvantaged um, as Colombia seeks to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, economic dislocation. We are working comprehensively to provide support uh, to women and girls through things like uh, entrepreneurship programs, uh, small and microfinance programming, training, uh, providing support to Colombian institutions to implement the uh, 2016 Peace Accord, uh, and I can go deeper if you like, but I want to make sure my colleague also has a chance. Sure, no, thank you, Senator, for your uh, focus on this issue. In responding to this reality, um, Colombia has one of USAID's largest standalone gender programs um, anywhere in the world, and, and dedicated staff in the field mission to focus on this problem. Problem. It actually launched this last October, a $35 million program dealing with issues of gender equity, changing societal attitudes, gender-related policies, um, and protecting you know, human rights of, of women and girls. And we are linking with the Colombian vice president, who's also very committed to, to these issues, and, and, uh, and make sure that gender cuts through all of our programming. So when we're working with land titles, 50% of those land titles went to women. So we wanna make sure that, that gender cuts through everything that we do. Good, thank you. I'm pleased to hear that and look forward to seeing the ongoing um, studies that show how the implementation is working. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank all of you for your uh, testimony today. I've been concerned uh, by reports of increasing uh, violence in Colombia's rural uh, regions, um, especially near the Venezuelan border. Um, I understand that these attacks are being perpetrated primarily by FARC dissidents, as well as uh, the ELN, the National Liberation Army, an even more violent uh, group, uh, and especially concerned of the toll this is taking on civilian populations, on indigenous groups, uh, and on human rights uh, defenders, all of whom been, have been targeted. Uh, Assistant Secretary Nichols, what is the Colombian government plan uh, to address these issues, and uh, how can we help them? Thank you, Senator. The uh, Segunda Marcatalia, a FARC dissident group, and the ELN uh, have launched attacks against uh, Colombian government installations, uh, against uh, uh, airports, against military facilities, uh, using safe haven um, from Venezuela uh, to help them uh, achieve those attacks. Uh, Last week, we met with uh, a variety of senior Colombian officials to talk about a comprehensive approach uh, under the high-level strategic security dialogue uh, to our cooperation. Uh, among the things that we're looking at are um, strengthening our cooperation and intelligence sharing, um, training, mobility, um, cybersecurity, uh, all of those areas, um, police and law enforcement, uh, strengthening uh, to help them deal with the threats uh, posed by the uh, FARC dissident groups and the ELN. 
Uh, thank, thank you. Uh, do you have any concerns at this point that that violence uh, could lead to any unraveling of the peace accords, or are you confident that it can be uh, addressed? Uh, I believe it can be addressed. I believe that the uh, Colombian military is, uh, and security forces broadly is, and, and uh, broader government have the uh, capacity and training uh, to deal with those threats. And I believe that those FARC members who have uh, the original FARC that uh, demobilizes part of the 2016 agreement remain committed to that agreement. Uh, let, let me turn to um, some of the issues regarding uh, human rights abuses in among the Colombian police. Um, as you know, Plan Colombia and, and other U.S. assistance has been very successful uh, at helping Colombia uh, consolidate uh, its dem democracy to improve the economic situation. Uh, but despite billions of dollars uh, that we've provided, Colombia's security forces continue to be involved in serious human rights violations, uh, including the killings of dozens of civilians during mass protests in 2021. Um, as you know, uh, Under Secretary Newland just announced uh, last week another $8 million in assistance. Um, what mechanisms do we have in place uh, to prevent um, our funds, our help, from being implicated in any way uh, in these kind of human rights abuses? Well, uh, the, the $8 million that was announced last week is precisely to uh, support the Colombian National Police's human rights, respect, and response. Uh, it goes to vetting police officers, providing training for officers, uh, providing in greater investigatory capability when there is an accusation uh, of uh, human rights violations. Uh, and I think those are all very important steps. And I'll note that President Duque himself has repeatedly said that he has a zero tolerance policy for human rights violations. Uh, the uh, protests that took place, there have been investigations uh, into uh, police actions, uh, both internally within the police as well as the Colombian Attorney General. Uh, and uh, uh, there have, has been some accountability, uh, but more remains to be done. Well, in, in keeping with the uh, stated zero tolerance policy, um, mm -hmm. What actions have we done to cut off any assistance that may have gone to units who committed uh, the abuses um, like the anti-riot police who killed protesters in 2021? Have we made clear that none of our funds should go to that unit? So we cannot provide funds to any unit that uh, violates human rights uh, under the Leahy Amendment. Uh, that's part of our, our legal commitment. Uh, so, Mr. Sachs, I see my time's running out. So, is, is, is your answer that none of our funds are going to that unit? Defer to my colleague from INL, but... Yeah, no, we, we are not, we have not funded and we are not funding uh, any, any of the units that were involved in the uh, human rights abuses. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. Um, I don't have any other members presently uh, for Chairman, questions. Senator, Senator Cruz has indicated. Oh, I will want to wait forever for Senator Cruz. I'm sure you would. <laughs> Won't you ask I should question? wait. You should Won't want, you you want me. I'll ask another question. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm sure our panel would be thrilled to wait for that question. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, I have, uh, I heard you, Secretary Robinson, uh, say uh, 
you, you touched upon uh, combating uh, financial crimes. Uh, there's two elements as we deal with the drug traffic. Well, three elements. One, one we have to reduce our demand in the United States. Uh, that is something that we need to work on. Two is that we have to hit them where it hurts, and that's on the financial side. And three, if you have a poor Colombian farmer and you don't give them an alternative to a sustainable development opportunity, they're going to grow coca uh, or cultivate it. Uh, as, you, as you noted, that cultivation is uh, growing higher than production. Uh, so uh, with reference to uh, the first part, hitting them hard where it hurts, you, you touched upon how are we uh, focusing our attention with the Colombians in terms of combating financial crimes associated with the drug tra uh, trade? What additional steps are we taking to strengthen anti-money laundering initiatives? And then finally for uh, Administrator Escobar, how are we specifically targeting some of our program to deal with those poorer uh, uh, farmers uh, who we need to give an alternative with, one that actually helps them sustain their families instead of cultivating uh, or um, uh, actually engaging in, in, the, uh, in the drug trade. So let's, let's start off with you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. We have, uh, for a number of years now, been working very closely with uh, Columbia's, um, I always forget the name of this, the uh, Financial Investigative Unit. Uh, and we have, we have uh, experts working with them to target uh, the, the financial networks of these criminals. Uh, we've been doing that. We, we uh, expect to enhance that uh, relationship with our new strategy. That's thing number one. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, working, we are working closely with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, HSI, uh, to go after uh, 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 illegal activity at the ports. Um, we have experts on the ground at the ports uh, working on security, investigations, uh, and also tracking uh, illicit uh, financing. So those are, those are two ways, two things that we're going to do to enhance uh, going after the, the money laundering aspect uh, of, the, of, this, of this side of the criminal activity. Administrator? And and to answer your question on, on alternative licit uh, livelihoods, you know, we are very optimistic with this new holistic and sequencing approach where USAID complements eradication and interdiction, where we provide licit crops, land titling, you know, local government strengthening, uh, access to rule of law, and, uh, and options for youth empowerment. And it's, it's, it, this really dramatically increases the chances of success. Because when you take this holistic approach and this very place-based approach, it really gives people an option out of COCA. And Senator Shaheen had asked for data. And in one of these experiments or pilots that were running on land titling, we have seen that without a land title, about three-quarters of COCA growers replant after eradication. But with a, land, with a title, replanting drops to 20%. So I think this holistic approach would really make a difference. And, you know, I've seen it. I traveled to, to, to Caceres. I saw, uh, I, I thought that it was naive to believe that people would give up uh, this profitable trade. But really, you know, people hate living under the thumb of these thugs and, uh, and being subject to violence. So I think if we create the opportunities, people will take it. All right. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Mr. Nichols, welcome back. As we discussed the last time you appeared before this committee, I am deeply concerned about the Biden administration's decision in November to dismantle terrorism sanctions against the FARC and against FARC members. The FARC is an organization of Marxist-Leninist narco-terrorists. For decades, they have killed and kidnapped and extorted Colombians. They have murdered and seized American citizens. They continue to pose an acute threat to Colombian security and to American interests across the region. The last time we spoke, the decision to dismantle terrorism sanctions had just been announced. Since then, presumably, you've had some time to evaluate the effects. I want to ask you some questions about that. One of the reasons publicly cited for the removal of the FTO listing was to provide certain types of U.S. assistance to FARC for reintegration into Colombian society. I believe that justification is deeply flawed, but it was at least a reason that the administration cited for dismantling the sanctions. So, have you distributed any such aid? And if so, what checks were in place to ensure funding was not used for terrorism? Thank you, Senator. It's a pleasure to see you again. The a decision to uh, designate the FARC-EP and the Segunda Marcatalia as the current groups engaged in uh, terror activity in Colombia uh, was one fully concordant with the process of implementing the peace accords. Uh, we have continued our efforts to provide uh, broad uh, assistance to rural areas in Colombia. Mr. Nichols, if I could ask you to, to answer the specific question I asked, which is, have you distributed any such aid to the FARC or members of the FARC? Uh, I would have to defer to my colleague from USAID on the yeah. specifics we, of their program. We do not work or support terrorists. We do not give any funds. They are not legible to, to receive. Okay, to receive funds from. Uh, from USAID, and we actually so, have- So your testimony is that the Biden administration has not given any funds to FARC or members of the FARC? Right, they have okay. not. Good. Only to um, FARC deserters and people who are no longer, who have laid down their arms. So alongside removing terrorism sanctions on FARC, you also remove terrorist sanctions on individual FARC members. The press release that the Biden administration published listed literally hundreds of entities. A few weeks later, on December 11th, Colombia's Special Jurisdiction for Peace, an independent entity tasked with implementing the peace accords, issued summons for 47 FARC members because they had been involved in the forced recruitment of children for the conflict and for child trafficking. Five of these individuals had been sanctioned by the United States for their roles until you removed them a few weeks earlier. Did the State Department consult with the Colombians about these individuals before lifting sanctions? And did you reimpose sanctions after the announcement of their involvement with child trafficking? So the, the process of uh, delisting uh, the FARC and listing FARC-EP and Segunda Marcatalia was done uh, in consultation with the government of Colombia. Uh, the FARC, as the, the organization that signed the 2016 peace agreement, is not listed as a terror organization in Colombia. Uh, U.S. immigration law prevents the entry uh, of any of the members of the FARC who took up arms. Uh, so was the Biden 
State Department aware of the work and impending decision of Columbia's special jurisdiction for peace at the time you lifted the sanctions on these individuals? They don't consult their decisions with the United States government before. So you were not aware of it? Not to my knowledge. Okay. I, I want to shift in my remaining time to Mexico. Mr. Nichols, as you know and we've discussed, I'm deeply concerned about deepening civil unrest in Mexico and the breakdown there of civil society. The breakdown of the rule of law across our southern border poses acute national security challenges and dangers to the United States on issues ranging from counter-narcotics to illegal immigration. The current climate faced by politicians and journalists in Mexico is the deadliest ever. In 2020, more journalists were killed in Mexico than in any other country in the world. It alone accounted for almost a third of the journalists killed. Since the start of the electoral process in September 2020, over 80 politicians were assassinated by criminal organizations and more than 60 candidates suspended their campaigns under duress. President Lopez Obrador seems intent on making all of these trends worse. On Friday, he used his morning press conference to intimidate one of Mexico's highest profile journalists, Carlos Loret de Mola. He waved around private financial information and asked authorities to investigate it. He seems to be indulging and abusing power no matter the effect on Mexico or the U.S.-Mexico relations. What steps is the Biden administration taking to convey to the Mexican government that their behavior is undermining the rule of law and that it, that is in turn endangering American security and the U.S.-Mexico relationship? We have a deep and comprehensive relationship with Mexico on security issues. Uh, my colleague from INL and I uh, were in Mexico last year to discuss these issues, and our embassy continues to be engaged uh, on the full range of security but, but questions. What have you expressed about the murder of journalists, politicians, and the intimidation of journalists? We have said that the, uh, we believe that uh, the murder of journalists and the murder of uh, civil society members uh, is a tremendous problem and a stain for all of us. We need to take actions to protect those important members of Mexican society. Uh, it is crucial for us to redouble our efforts to protect uh, politicians, journalists, civil society members. Uh, it's vital, and we talk about that with our Mexican colleagues all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to follow up on Senator Cruz's questioning regarding Mexico. I, too, am very concerned about the situation there. Uh, I was also in Mexico last year. I met with government officials, but also members of the private sector there in Mexico, and with American interests that are present in Mexico, where we have significant investments. We have trade agreements with Mexico that are not being honored properly. Uh, I'm very concerned about the, the lack of the rule of law that Senator Cruz mentioned. And I'd like to get your assessment of where we are today versus where we were, say, a year and a half ago. Uh, I think we have a very positive, uh, constructive, frank relationship uh, with the Mexican government. Uh, I think we agree on a great many things. Uh, and there are a great many issues that we need to work with them uh, to move forward on. Uh, when you talk about uh, issues that uh, are of great import to us, uh, working to forge a cohesive uh, North American uh, energy policy that is green, it's respectful of the rights of the private sector. Uh, Does that include uh, confiscation of American investments in Mexico? Are you for that? 
I am against that. I think you should be. This would take a lot more time than we have. I'd like to turn our conversation now, though, to Colombia. Uh, if you think about the activity of the Chinese Communist Party around the world, Colombia is one of the areas that I am most concerned about. Um, back in 2019, Xi Jinping hosted President Duque from Colombia, and they agreed on a number of bilateral projects. They are now developing, the Chinese are now, now developing the Bogota Metro, the Bogota Regional Railway. They're doing the 4G and 5G systems uh, around many uh, parts of Colombia and infrastructure projects. I, I want to talk now and turn our attention to the U.S.-Columbia Growth Initiative. Uh, that was a significant investment to try to help strengthen Colombia's economic and rural development. Uh, the DFC committed some $1 billion to 30 projects there in sectors ranging from critical infrastructure to financial services. Could you give me an update of where we are on that commitment, where those, where those projects stand today? So uh, DFC continues to work to uh, develop projects in Colombia. I met with uh, Pro-Colombia, their uh, investment, uh, uh, government investment arm last week to discuss uh, the projects. Uh, there are six projects that were um, in various stages. Uh, when I met, uh, one of our priorities uh, is through DFC and other mechanisms uh, to uh, increase investment uh, through Build Back Better World uh, in Colombia. That's uh, something that we believe can be transformative. Colombia and the United States have a $30 billion trade relationship, and we'd like to see uh, even greater investment there. Uh, I met with the American Chamber of Commerce to talk about uh, the obstacles that American companies face when investing in Colombia, uh, and we agreed to continue our efforts uh, to support U.S. investment. Can I come back to what you just said? You said that there are six projects underway. Does that mean that 24 of the 30 that were agreed to have not yet commenced? So uh, the, I'm not aware of, of those projects uh, that occurred during the prior administration, so I don't know. Uh, the, this is a significant investment, and our economic security and our ties there are going to be critical to our national security. So I'd like to ask you if you could get back to me and to this committee with an update on where we stand with respect to those 30 projects that were committed under the DFC, by the DFC uh, under the previous administration and where, where the plan is to see those executed. Again, I think those are going to be critical to our prosperity. I'd like to come now to the digital economy and, and, and the infrastructure that's being built there in Colombia. Uh, are we doing anything to make certain that the infrastructure that's being built out for the next generation of Columbia telecommunications, 4G, 5G, is protected from the Chinese Communist Party or malign actors like Huawei? Uh, we have had uh, multiple discussions with the Colombian government uh, about that. Um, we are in conversations about alternative technologies and opportunities that do not use Chinese uh, technology. Uh, telecommunications companies in Colombia are private companies, so um, this, this will also involve um, working with them, uh, but there's a key regulatory component, uh, and we believe that we can structure this in a way that's good for Colombian consumers and avoids Chinese technology. I, I think there's certainly a way. I would encourage you to look at what I did with the government of Japan when I served as ambassador there, because there are four private infrastructure telecommunication companies there, but I work with the government of Ch Japan to make sure that those remain clean. That's possible, and I encourage you to work on a way to do that as well in Colombia. I think that is a 
important for our national security and theirs. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Anyone else? All right. Uh, I hope that this discussion has uh, stimulated the State Department and the administration to think about uh, how we reinvigorate our relationship with Colombia, how we deepen it on this 200th anniversary. We welcome the Department's remarks uh, to the legislation we'll be introducing and uh, any insights, we would appreciate it. Uh, and with the thanks of the committee, this, this panel is excused. As we have uh, our first panel depart, let me uh, begin to introduce uh, our second panel. We're joined by Mr. Dan Restrepo, a fellow, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress with expansive expertise on Colombia. Mr. Restrepo served as the principal advisor to President Obama on issues related to Latin America, the Caribbean, and Canada, a special assistant to the president and senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the National Security Council. Previously, he served on the professional staff of the House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs, as well as a law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Uh, the committee will also hear from Salina Relayo, an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs. Uh, <clears throat> professor Relayo's work focuses on U.S. national security, illicit networks, transnational organized crime, counterterrorism, and economic uh, sanctions issues. Uh, she has previously served as a U.S. diplomat, international banker with Goldman Sachs, and State Department Director of Counterterrorism Finance Programs. She has spoken and written regularly in English and Spanish about transnational crime, drug trafficking, and corruption in the Americas. So our thanks uh, to both of you. Uh, we invite you to make your statements in about five minutes or so. Uh, your full statements will be included in the record, and we'll start with you, Mr. Restrepo. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rich. Thank you for this opportunity to discuss the U.S.-Columbia relationship. Chairman Menendez, allow me to take this moment to commend you for holding this hearing and for authoring the U.S.-Columbia Strategic Alliance Act, both important signals of the abiding U.S. commitment to the people of Colombia at a critical juncture. Colombia is today a like-minded democracy in the heart of Latin America through the sacrifice of generations of Colombians with steadfast U.S. support. Advancing core U.S. national interests demands continued and reinforced commitment. Even aside from the pandemic and its fallout, Colombia faces notable challenges. Implementation of the 2016 peace accords lags, illicit economies are flourishing, and insecurity is on the rise. Venezuela's descent into kleptocracy, criminality, and chaos continues to put pressure on Colombia. Much-needed fiscal, labor, and pension reforms and expanded investment in human capital have proven elusive. Colombia's political class continues to struggle to define a post-peace accord North Star. And not coincidentally, in light of all of the above, Colombia has experienced one of the region's most pronounced declines in faith and democracy in recent years. At the same time, Colombia is a critical leader on some of the central issues facing the Americas and the world, including migration, climate, citizen security, and fostering innovation. Understanding the successful migration management 
must extend far beyond border measures, the Colombian government across two administrations and the Colombian people have stepped up to help their neighbors in need. President Iván Duque's decision to grant Venezuelans legal status for 10 years was one of the most commendable acts of leadership in the Americas in recent memory. It's an example to be followed, as President Biden did when he granted TPS to Venezuelans. Colombia's unparalleled biodiversity makes it a wellspring of hope for our planet and a critical player in responding to the climate crisis and leading the energy transition in the Americas, especially at a time when countries like Brazil imperil our planet through anti-science denialism. Colombia is also home to modern entrepreneurs like Rappi, among Latin America's burgeoning tech unicorns, and others hot on its heels, as well as cities like Medellin, that strive to embrace the power of technology to better connect Colombians to 21st century global value chains. The country is also, despite and in some cases paradoxically because of the challenges it faces, a vital security and citizen security partner. A new strategic alliance between the United States and Colombia can help address Colombia's challenges, consolidate its leadership, and as it has done repeatedly throughout history, advance key U.S. national interests across the hemisphere, as it did during the era of the good neighbor policy, World War II, the birth of the inter-American system, and the Alliance for Progress, to cite but a few examples. It is no accident that every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan, except President Trump, visited Colombia while in office. Against this backdrop, as you look to the next chapter in this storied relationship, I urge you to advance U.S. interests by continuing to support implementation of the peace accords, investing in a region-wide approach to mitigate, manage, and order irregular migration, finding ways U.S. development assistance financing can be catalytic in the transformation of the Colombian economy, leveraging Colombian climate leadership, supporting comprehensive efforts to roll back illicit economies, and respecting Colombian democracy. In closing, allow me to elaborate on this final point. With Colombians headed to the polls, everything possible must be done to safeguard these critical elections so they accurately reflect the will of the Colombian people, free from outside interference and mis- and disinformation. It is imperative that the U.S. government and other U.S. political actors defer to Colombian voters, as we rightly expect Colombians and others to defer to U.S. voters free from influence. We should stand in unyielding support for Colombia's democratic process and institutions, not for or against particular candidates. Going forward, U.S. interests will best be served by a Colombia that vigilantly respects democracy and builds a more inclusive capitalism. We should trust our friends and allies in Colombia to choose leaders across their democratic institutions who will lead along such a path. And we should stand ready to work with those leaders as we have done across the past two centuries to advance shared values and interests. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ms. Relayo? Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee for the opportunity to testify before you on the challenges facing Colombia and the need for a 
deeper U.S. engagement. I've had the privilege of uh, covering Colombia and counter-narcotics uh, issues since I was a junior officer at U.S. Embassy Panama in the 1990s, and then implementing Plan Colombia at the State Department Counterterrorism Office, and more recently specializing on illicit networks in the Americas as an academic. In fact, in 10 days, I will head to Bogota to conduct a national, uh, like a national threats, um, an emerging threats seminar with the Colombian National War College. This year, as you know, Colombia and the United States celebrate 200 years of bilateral relations and enjoy a strong partnership promoting security and prosperity in Latin America. Colombia has transformed itself from a nearly failed state threatened by counterinsurgency um, into a sound democracy with the support of Plan Colombia, combating the cocaine trade and armed groups like the FARC and ELN over the past 20 years. Currently, Colombia is experiencing multiple crises that threaten stability ahead of its presidential elections. Massive anti-government protests, rising violence, human rights abuses, increased cocaine trade, frustrations with the pandemic, and instability spilling over from Venezuela have made President Duque's government very unpopular. The COVID-19 pandemic has become a force multiplier for pre-existing socioeconomic grievances and have emboldened uh, President Duque's opponents. External actors like Venezuela, China, and Russia have increased their activities in Colombia, compounding these domestic crises. The Maduro regime has exported instability to Colombia by supporting the FARC rebels and the ELN who are engaged in an illicit economy that is ever expanding and spurred the mass migration of some 6 million Venezuelans, of which 2 million are in Colombia. As Colombia's second largest trading partner after the United States, China is aggressively and strategically investing in major infrastructure and technology projects. It's also engaged in vaccine diplomacy to pressure the Duque government to allow China's telecom company Huawei to participate in the upcoming 5G spectrum auction. Meanwhile, Russian intelligence services have been active in Colombia in recent years, and Russia has close ties to Venezuela, selling some 11 billion in arms to Colombia's neighbor since 2005. This month, Colombian Defense Minister Molano reported that Venezuela was moving troops to the border region with the assistance from Russia and Iran, where there's fierce fighting currently between the ELN and former FARC rebels who try to control the drug trade. Russia has also capitalized on Latin American distrust of traditional media and official messaging to impact and shape public opinion and perceptions against incumbent governments and democratic institutions. With all these crises, there are fears that new violent protests, disinformation campaigns, and election meddling might destabilize Colombia. Therefore, the U.S. must redouble its efforts to support Colombia to defend its democracy, market economy, and sovereignty, and to ensure free, fair, and transparent elections this year. To deepen our partnership with Colombia at this challenging time, I advise the Biden administration and Congress to increase security assistance to Colombia in support of their security services to counter armed groups and the lucrative drug trade and expand and reinforce state presence in areas vulnerable to transnational organized crime. Also, it should expand the use of financial intelligence to combat, prosecute, dismantle, and defund these illicit networks. We should also be assisting with the professionalization of Colombia's military and police to include more human rights and rule of law training. 
We should also help Colombia in its efforts to ensure cybersecurity of its critical infrastructure, including sensitive data and communications. With regard to external actors, the U.S. should boost counterintelligence capabilities to monitor what these external actors are doing to try to destabilize Colombia and the rest of Latin America. We should continue our collaborative efforts with the aspiration of bringing security, stability, and democracy back to Venezuela. We should also try to help civil society groups in Colombia address issues of misinformation and fake news, and more importantly, counter those efforts by hostile internal and foreign actors. And on the economic side, we should promote U.S. investment in Colombian infrastructure projects in order to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative and 5G technological aspirations. And finally, as we look from the lessons of the pandemic, we need to think about increasing bilateral trade in a part of our attempt to near source and provide more resilience for our supply chains within the Western Hemisphere. Thank you so much for your attention. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you both. We'll start our series of five-minute uh, questions. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, listening to the previous panel and some of your insights, one of our challenges is that if we don't want countries to use Huawei, if we don't want China to be investing in their infrastructure and ports, uh, not only do we want to make it clear to those countries that we don't want to see that, but we have to compete with China. We have to offer an alternative to Huawei. We have to offer an alternative in investments uh, into a country. Otherwise, we just say, no, don't do that, but then leave you with nothing. And so that's something that I think we have to focus on. I th that's why I think the IDB uh, is a, a great opportunity, and I hope we can get it a capital investment increase, to be a leader in helping us to fashion uh, responses to some of these economic and development questions uh, where American businesses are actually engaged. The IDB was used uh, previously uh, by China. Mm -hmm. We were actually conducting, the IDB was conducting trade shows for China. I'm glad that its new leadership um, ended that uh, and is focused in, in a different direction. But it just comes to me as I listen to various of the testimony that this is a critical thing that we have to address. Yes, we don't want Huawei. We don't want its security challenges to our telecommunications infrastructure, but we certainly have to have an alternative. Uh, Mr. Restrepo, for, for years, numerous American officials have repeatedly referred to Colombia as a U.S. ally, yet we have never taken the step of making that formal designation. Uh, would you agree that we're long overdue in formalizing the United States strategic alliance with Colombia? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, they are a strategic partner and ally, um, have been not just since Plan Colombia. I think there's a recency bias in our analysis often. Um, as I noted, um, World War II, Colombia played a critical role in hunting U-boats in the Caribbean and allowing the U.S. Navy to prepare for its Pacific campaign off Colombia's Pacific coast, deployed troops to Korea during the Korean conflict, uh, was fundamental in establishing the inter-American system, was fundamental partner in the Alliance for Progress. Um, this is a long-standing relationship that deeply benefits and advances U.S. national interests and should be recognized formally as such. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, uh, throughout Plan Colombia, the United States continuously recalibrated our foreign assistance 
to advance our strategic uh, objectives of helping Colombia end the world's longest-running internal conflict, combat narcotics trafficking, and strengthen peace, democratic governance, and human rights. As we look to reinvigorate the U.S.-Colombia relations, how do, uh, how do we, uh, and set our sights, I should say, on addressing the opportunities and challenges of the future, not just deal with the ghosts of the past, what lessons can we draw from Plan Colombia to inform the future of our cooperation with Colombia and ensure that we're maximizing the impact of engagement on economic, social, environmental, and security issues, as well as uh, addressing the emerging threats and challenges? So I think the fundamental lesson from Plan Colombia, and there are many, is where's the United States, where can the United States be catalytic? Where does the United States have a comparative advantage where we can help Colombia in a way distinct from what is on offer within Colombia or otherwise in the international community? At the onset of Plan Colombia, that was air mobility and the ability to project Colombian, the Colombian state and Colombian lethal reach to all of Colombia society, and at the same time, human rights and the professionalization of its security forces. Um, today, I think that goes to the need to help Colombia become a much more innovative economy and a much more technologically advanced economy uh, through both the IDB, as you mentioned, the IDB and the United States should be present in IDB Invest, the private sector arm, in a way that it is not today. Um, that should be part of any recapitalization of the IDB. And the DFC should be looking to put risk capital at play to burgeon the kind of technological advances that an economy like Colombia's needs to be sustainable and equitable into the 21st century. Thank you. Senator Rich. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Uh, Raluyu, what, what kind of security assistance should the U.S. Uh, be emphasizing uh, to more effectively help Colombia address the security environment that they face today? Well, as a result of the many years that we've invested in security assistance on all aspects, also it's important to understand it's not only been at the national level, but actually at the more local level, um, where we're seeing the um, heightened violence and the rate of homicides rising quite dramatically. We've actually got a lot of what I call the building blocks in place. The question is, how do you make them more sophisticated and more nimble in terms of taking a look at this? So as you know, I've been following the money trail of terrorist groups and criminal organizations for the past 20 years. And it's a great sign that we're now really starting to invest in cultivating and harvesting what we call financial intelligence. These groups that have now abandoned their political aspirations like the FARC dissidents and the ELN of overthrowing the central government of Colombia, they're all in it for the money. Because the cocaine trade is so lucrative um, and the uh, illegal um, uh, gold mining, which we didn't really mention during the hearing today, um, they're all about securing the supply chain and then more importantly, the transit routes in order to get these illicit products to market. So one piece with our military assistance is how to help the Colombians reestablish control in what were ungoverned or vulnerable spaces. And that is primarily right now where you're seeing the violence, that border region between um, Colombia and Venezuela. 
And sadly, too, the Venezuelan regime of Maduro has actually given safe haven, ample safe haven, and direct assistance to groups like the ELN and the FARC to enrich themselves. So that's an area where we're starting to now incorporate different types of intelligence um, at an operational level. So that's actually taking also signals intelligence to actually listen to their communications with who the money runners are. And then now it's quite interesting in my research, I'm looking at what's called the digitalization of the illicit economy. How are they starting to use cyberspace to secure, for example, precursor chemicals, which we didn't really talk about as well, that are needed in the labs to transform the coca into refined cocaine, which sadly is becoming even purer and more impactful and is starting to come back into the United States. So this is an area where we've seen more comprehensive approach to security as opposed to these silos that existed in our government in the United States as well as others. So we're looking at what we call more um, kind of interdepartmental or interagency, we would call it in the United States, this training of prosecutors and the financial intelligence units as well as the military and the police to um, actually execute a more comprehensive attack against these illicit armed groups. Well, thanks for that. Um, it's pretty common knowledge that Russia's uh, got a growing military and intelligence activity in both Venezuela and Colombia. How, how can the U.S. help uh, Colombia in uh, safeguarding sensitive communications and mitigate the risks that uh, are presented by Russia? Um, in our bilateral academic meetings with our counterparts in Colombia, there's tremendous demand mm -hmm. for training and, more importantly, understanding what we call the cyber domain. Mm -hmm. So this is part of uh, SCADA units and, then more importantly, the whole platform in taking a look at how to not just secure the installations that we have now in both countries, and we share a lot of lessons learned, but more importantly, looking at how you train the next generation to be able to anticipate so this is where we're using concepts such as strategic foresight to kind of game out how there might be vulnerabilities in existing systems. And then the bigger challenge that we've seen throughout Latin America and in Colombia is the interoperability. So for example, police units and military units still struggle in sharing real time what we call actionable intelligence, and then more importantly, how to protect. Um, and also we raise awareness about sadly the infiltration of corrupt actors inside the security services, uh, which is a challenge in many countries around the world. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, time's up almost anyway, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, I have one uh, last question for both of you. I don't know. Is there any other? Okay. Uh, I mentioned the, you know, uh, Colombia's tax uh, decision, which created a, a, a revolt as a result of it. But that tax decision was spurred uh, by uh, requirements of the IMF uh, to meet certain fiscal obligations in the midst of a pandemic. And this is not unique uh, to Colombia. There are several countries in the hemisphere and beyond uh, where uh, this uh, uh, requirements, uh, stringent requirements of the IMF without the flexibility for what I call a smoothing period, but call it whatever you want, not to move away for the obligation, but ultimately to have the time to meet the obligation in a responsible way that doesn't create societal disruption uh, is something uh, I'd be interested in, in your yeah. thoughts on. Senator, the, you, you're entirely correct 
Um, and this is, this is a problem throughout Latin America and actually throughout many emerging markets at the moment. Um, countries are frankly out of fiscal space um, as a result of attempts to protect the most vulnerable populations during uh, the pandemic. That is true in Colombia where a significant percentage of GDP was reallocated or directed towards the most vulnerable portions of the population. And an effort was stood up to reach folks in an economy that is deeply informal. Colombian, the Colombian economy informality ranges in the 60 to 65%, uh, which is one of the challenges that the economy faces. Uh, international financial institutions, starting with the IMF, IMF right now should be providing more fiscal space for countries rather than demanding quick corrections, if you will, um, as we emerge from the effects of the pandemic. Uh, it's one of the reasons, and, and we've been a little remiss in not focusing, I think, on the Colombian response on migration. One of the things that Colombia has done is launch an unprecedented regularization program. Uh, in November of last year, the World Bank and the IDB, with U.S. support, um, allocated $800 million in financing to Colombia to support that integration and regularization program. Uh, in direct budget support conditioned on these programs. That's the sort of thing that these institutions should be doing throughout the Americas today um, to help deal with a massive movement of people and, his, and a historic movement of people um, that has been exacerbated by the pandemic itself. So yes, the IMF should be uh, engaging in these smoothing periods as you uh, named them, uh, and the inst international financial institutions should be using their balance sheets to help countries both deal with the effects of the pandemic and the communities that have of reception throughout the region for vulnerable populations that have been dislocated over the course of the last seven years. Ms. Relier, any observations? Um, and if we take a look at the IFIs, they uh, also have their own requirements and their own constituencies and stakeholders. And it's unfortunate that President Duque decided to uh, raise, then more importantly, propose the tax that would hit the middle class that actually served as a catalyst for these mass protests that had never been seen before in the streets of Colombia. But this also actually underscores um, the spirit of the hearing today about the importance of reinvigorating, as you titled the hearing, um, the bilateral economic and trade ties with uh, Colombia and the United States. Because all these countries that have suffered so much uh, from the pandemic, and as you know, Colombia contracted its GDP by 6% in 2020 and was one of the hardest hit countries uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. They have to grow their economy, and thankfully, Colombia has not just the natural resources, but the human and financial resources that position them very well for a quick recovery and that recovery is directly linked to the U.S. economy. And that's where we see these concepts of the strategy of near sourcing, realigning global supply chains to uh, rebuild, if not reinforce, the U.S. ties with our Latin American partners, not just in Latin America, but the Caribbean, is a way out. And I think as we look at what's going to grow, and then more importantly, not just the goods, but the services industry, I see a very promising future in U.S.-Colombian bilateral economic relations. Um, we spoke a lot today about security. You can't have prosperity without security, but you also can't fund 
prosperity without actually having security to attract um, investments and looking at alternatives. You had asked and mentioned earlier the point about um, trying to counter China's aggressive advances. And the real issue is as well is to offer goods and services that meet the needs of the Colombian people and the economy. And I think that the US is very well positioned to do that. Um, and I look forward to seeing the passage of your bill to really reinforce and then more importantly codify the relationship between Colombia and the United States. Well, thank you. I, I think one of the challenges for countries like Colombia is when you have such a large informal economy, when you try to make it formal, <laughs> there's, always, <laughs> there's always a reluctance to have to pay your way uh, to the state uh, at the end of the day. So that'll be challenging for whoever uh, comes next, but I appreciate your insights. With that, uh, thank you both for uh, helping us uh, think about this uh, more deeply. Uh, we appreciate uh, your participation here today. Um, this hearing's record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.